0: If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn in the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy, the 13th chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. Please uh, take those and, and use them this morning if you have need of them. What started out as a measles outbreak in Disneyland in December spread to more than 26 people. As an unvaccinated California woman, apparently spread the virus through airports and a theme park. According to the Los Angeles Times, an unvaccinated traveler in her 20s became sick and contagious on the 28th of December while at the theme park and from there she flew from Orange County to Washington State and then she returned to Orange County on January the 3rd and California health officials announced the outbreak on the 7th of January. Uh, The Center for Disease Control says that measles is actually the most deadly of all childhood fever rash illnesses and that though there's a vaccination for it uh, anti-vaccination movement has gained traction in the united states despite widespread scientific criticism and debunking of the movement's claims now the focus in this story and several others uh, i read about this seems to be on this unvaccinated woman not the person who initially left the virus but the unvaccinated woman in whose body uh, the virus found a home and a base from which to spread. So how do you feel about this unvaccinated woman needlessly spreading measles? Or let's get out of the headlines. How do you feel about the parents of the preschooler who sends little Johnny to school knowing that little Johnny is sick, knowing that little Johnny has a fever, but they can't be inconvenienced, They can't miss work. They don't want to miss work. And so they send Johnny to school anyway. And then little Johnny infects the entire class, including your little Johnny. And then your little Johnny brings that sickness into your home. And now you have to deal with little Johnny's sickness and the sickness of your family. What do you want to do to little Johnny's parents? Now, I know the Christian answer. Pray for them and forgive them. And you would probably do that because you're more spiritual than I am. But when that happened to me and I was sitting up all night in a recliner with a sick child, I rehearsed many times what I would say to those parents and what I would do to those parents had I the opportunity. Because you know what? We, we, we love our children and we want to protect them. What extent would you go to? to protect your children or someone you love. And what extent is God allowed to go to? Last week we finished Deuteronomy chapter 12, and we noted that when you love, you want to give. When you love, you want to give. This morning we're going to go to chapter 13, and we're going to see that when you love, you want to protect. When you love, you want to protect. So if you have your Bible open to chapter 13 of the book of Deuteronomy, I want to ask you to stand. We are going to be reading the entire chapter, but we want to stand out of uh, reverence for the word of the living God. So Deuteronomy chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Moses speaking to the people gathered on the plains of Moab. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you an miraculous sign or wonder and if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place and he says let us follow other gods gods you have not known and let us worship them you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer the lord your god is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart with all your soul it's the lord your god you must follow and him you must revere keep his commands and obey him serve him and hold fast to him That prophet or dreamer must be put to death because he preached rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. He he has tried to turn you from the way of the Lord your God, commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. If your very own brother or your son or daughter or the wife you love or your closest friend secretly entices you, saying, let us go and worship other gods, God's that neither you nor your fathers have known. God's of the peoples around you, whether near or far, from one end of the land to the other. Do not yield to him or listen to him. Show him no pity. Do not spare him or shield him. You must certainly put him to death. Your hand must be the first in putting him to death and then the hands of all the people. Stone him to death because he tried to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, then all Israel will hear and be afraid, and no one among you will do such an evil thing again. If you hear it said about one of the towns the Lord your God has given you to live in, that wicked men have arisen among you and have led the people of their town astray, saying, Let us go and worship other gods, gods you have not known. Then you must inquire, probe, and investigate it thoroughly and all of its plunder is a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It is to remain a ruin forever, never to be rebuilt. None of those condemned things shall be found in your hands so that the Lord will turn from his fierce anger. He'll show you mercy, have compassion on you, and increase your numbers, as he promised on oath to your forefathers, because you obey the Lord your God, keeping all his commands that I am giving you today and doing what is right in his eyes." Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would fulfill your promise that you have made to us, that your blessing would accompany the reading and the hearing of your holy word. Father, again, we thank you for your spirit. We pray now, o spirit of God, that you would give us understanding of your truth as we approach your word this morning. Give us a spirit of humility as we approach your word knowing that you are so far above us, your ways, your thoughts, uh, far uh, above ours. We come here, Lord, to learn from you, to be taught by you, to have our lives transformed by you and your truth. So we commit this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I think we should just be honest from the very beginning and admit that Passages like this one in the Bible, really, we wish that they weren't here. Because this is the kind of passage that can really embarrass us. Particularly in a week like the one that has just passed. Where the Islamic State brutally beheaded 21 Egyptian Coptic Christians. Don't we want to distance ourselves from passages like this? It doesn't help us very much either to have our president say at the national prayer breakfast on February 5th, "quote, unless we get on our high horse and think this is unique to some other place, remember that during the Crusades and the Inquisition, people committed terrible deeds in the name of Christ. So apparently our president thinks that we're all pretty much the same. You know, ISIS, Christians. So, how do we deal with a passage like Deuteronomy 13? A passage that makes God seem primitive, makes him seem barbaric, particularly in light of the sophistication and the advancement of 2015. We have to tread very carefully in our thinking here. And we have to, to fight the temptation to lock God away in an ancient time or place or to make God the product of that time or place and the behavior which was the norm then because you and I need to remember that we will never progress beyond God. We will we'll never progress beyond Him. You and I will never ever know things that God does not know. You and I will never understand things that God doesn't understand or that we won't have the ability to explain to the poor old guy who just doesn't get it. God's here right now. He's relevant. He's not antiquated. And He's far advanced beyond any one of us. And so when we come to a passage like Deuteronomy 13... It's a revelation of the will of God and the heart of God. And so we have to posit this from the very beginning, that God is great, God is glorious, God is gracious, and God is good. That is who He is, always. So we come to Deuteronomy 13 and passages like it, and that's what we're looking for, the goodness and the glory and the greatness and the grace of God, because we know it's here. And we come seeking to dispel the, the, the fog or confusion that would make us think anything other of our God. So this chapter is divided into three different sections. And each of these sections contains the same potential problem. When these people gathered here on the plains of Moab listening to Moses preach to them, when they go and take possession of the promised land, and when they settle into the very good life that they're going to experience there, the blessed life, the abundant life, There may be people from within their community that that rise up and attempt to get God's people to be unfaithful to the covenant that they have made with God. In a sense, they're going to try to get these people to divorce God because they're going to say to them, there is another partner over here that will suit you so much better. Now, this is a reality for all of us. People are always coming into our lives, coming and and going. And they complicate our lives. And some of these people present possibilities before us that that sometimes we wish we we never knew existed. And sometimes they'll introduce things to us that we wish we never knew about. And then we're left to figure out how to reconcile all of this with our faith in Christ. In verses 2 through 6... It's the religious leaders, people who claim to be speaking for God, who lead the people astray, who say to them, let us follow other gods. In verses 7 through 11, the same temptation is coming from immediate family members, those people closest to you, sons, daughters, your spouse, friends who are as close as your own soul. The third group, in verses 12 through 14, are called by one commentator, urban revolutionaries. And there are men who attempt to get a whole village, a whole city to turn against God. And so in every major sector of a person's life, their religious life, their family life, their social slash political life, there comes this temptation to turn away from God and turn to something else, someone else to replace God. To seek from those people or those idols what you once sought from God to seek satisfaction in those things, or those people or those idols that you once experienced from your relationship with God. And so unless you believe that this story is a story out of time, and unless you believe that you are immune to temptations in your life, that somehow you are vaccinated uh, against them, temptations from your family member, from your close friends, from your secular culture, from your church culture, unless you are truly free from that temptation, then all of us should be interested in what God says here. How God would have us address those people, those things that would lead us away from Him. And so the contrast in each one of these sections in Deuteronomy 13 is between who you know and who you don't know. And so God highlights again what He wants us to get through repetition. Look at the parenthetical phrase in verse 2. God says there, these are gods you have not known. Verse 6, gods that neither you nor your fathers have known. Verse 13, gods you have not known. Now remember ultimately that the people don't know these gods, not because they've never been introduced, but because these gods do not exist. People can fashion an idol out of wood. Or some kind of metal, and they can give it a name and they can stand it up, but it is not, nor will it ever be a God. Psalm 115. Their idols are silver and gold made by hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. Eyes, but cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear. Noses, but cannot smell. Hands, but they cannot feel. Feet, but cannot walk. They Cannot utter a sound with their throats. Listen, how blessed we would be, all of us here, if we truly were convinced of the emptiness and the hollowness of everything that we love and trust more than we love and trust Christ. If we could truly see them for what they are, they promise us so much, but they deliver so little that is of true, lasting soul satisfaction. And this, of course, is in contrast to God, Yahweh, whom the people do know. The Hebrew word used for know here refers to experience more than intellectual knowledge. The people of Israel know God. God has introduced them to himself to them. He said to Moses, tell the people, uh, I am, that's my name, I am. Tell them I am is here and He's going to deliver you. They've experienced the reality of God. He delivered them. He guided them through daylight and darkness and desert, through the sea on dry ground. He provided for them. He spoke to them, spoke to them, with such a powerful voice that the people said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we'll listen. But do not have God speak to us, or we will die. These people... They know God. They have experienced his reality. They've entered into a covenant relationship with him. God has promised to be their God and that they would be his people while they were still in Egypt. Before God had delivered them he said this to them, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. It sounds a little bit like our wedding vows, doesn't it? I God take you Israel to be my people. That's the covenant relationship. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And that's what God did. He faithfully fulfilled every promise to his people. And they experienced the fulfillment of those promises in real time and in real space. And so everything else that we're going to talk about this morning is predicated on this reality that God has clearly made himself known to his people. And that God's people have experienced the reality of his presence. God's fatherly love for them. God's shepherding hand over them. No question about it. Realities that they have never ever experienced from any other quote unquote God. The passage is silent as to the motivation that comes from the the, the religious leaders or the family members or, or the community leaders, for, for why they do what they do. But we can guess that for them there is some glory to be gained. Some sort of gain. Some kind of power. And that's nothing new. It is the same persistent, tenacious tactic tactic that's been used over and over again even before the world, the earth, existed. Satan knew God. He had been in the presence of God. He had observed the glory of God. He himself was a creature of beauty and glory, but Satan wanted something more for himself. He wanted glory that wasn't intended for him. He could not handle that glory. He wasn't equipped for it. He wanted power that was not intended for him, power he could not handle because he was not equipped to handle it. Honor that was not intended for him because he couldn't handle it. He wasn't equipped to. God is the only one who can handle God glory and God power and God honor. He is the only one that will not be corrupted by it. God is the only one that will never abuse in any way his glory or his honor or his power. But Satan has been in the business of recreating himself ever since this moment because misery, you know, loves company. And so he's been seducing other created beings, you and me, to follow him in his folly, to turn away and to go after the same things that Satan went after. Now look, not on the same cosmic scale and not on the same cosmic stage as this drama between God and Uh, and, and Satan played out. It's a much smaller stage for us, but nevertheless, the craving is just the same for all of us. Even if the power we seek is just power in our own home, even if the glory that we seek is just in our own home or in our own little community or in our own little church, just a little glory for me, just a little, just a little power, just a little honor, just a little recognition because, hey, I'm so great. <laughs> if we have that as a goal, then we must turn away from God to achieve it. We have to turn away from God to achieve it because it's the opposite of what He calls us to be. If we intend on promoting ourselves, we must turn in the opposite direction of the God who says to us, consider others better than yourselves. We must turn in the opposite direction from the God who inspired John to say to his close friends, who are attempting to get John to seek glory for himself, he says, no, he, Jesus, must increase. I must decrease. If we have it as a goal to have some glory for ourselves, if we heed the voices of those around us, from our friends, our our family, you go for it. You deserve it. Then we've got to turn in the opposite direction from the God who says, therefore... Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of who? God. So let's be clear that this is the exact goal of each of these groups listed here in in, in this chapter. To turn people away from God. Look in verse 5. That prophet preached rebellion against the Lord your God. He has tried to turn you from the way of the Lord your God commanded you to follow. Turn away. In Hebrew means rebel. Uh, it means apostasy. Verse 10 says, The person with whom you have an intimate relationship tried to turn you away from the Lord your God. That word in Hebrew literally means to seduce. And that's why the NASV translates it that way. That he has tried to seduce you from the Lord your God. The same Hebrew word is used in verse 13 about the wicked men. They've tried to seduce you away from the Lord your God. You and I aren't usually seduced by what is ugly or unattractive, only by what is beautiful, only by what is alluring. Proverbs chapter 7 describes the the adulteress. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. So let's be clear on this as well. To get God's people to turn away from God... The offer isn't for swampland in Texas. Nobody wants that. The temptation comes from something that is alluring, something that is seductive, something that they crave. If you get rid of God, if you turn away from Him, all this can be yours. James chapter 1, verse 14 says this, But each one, and so that's each one, all of us, Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brothers. So then, listen. If death is the end result of the seduction, if death is the end result of this turning away from God to satisfy lusts, and please, these go way beyond just the sexual kind. There's so many things in our lives that we desire. If death is the result of that, what would you allow God to do to prevent that death from occurring? And not just from, for one person, but for a whole nation, millions of people. What would you allow God to do to protect His people and to prevent so much death? In the end of each of these cases, in each of these sections, God calls for the death of those who are attempting to lead His people away from life and into death. And we think that is so harsh. And we say, where's the goodness of God in this? Where's the grace of God in this? And we're so hypocritical. We allow in ourselves what we are so offended at in God. Look, what do we do with pedophiles? We lock them away. And when they're released from prison, what do we do? We put their name on a list. And you can check that list. So you will know whether or not you are living next door to a pedophile. So you will know how to protect your children. In general, we think that's a good thing. And no one faults us for that. And that's what God is doing here at this time. He he calls for, for, for this action in this time, at this place, because at this time and in this place, the nation of Israel, they were nothing but spiritual babies. They were infants. Only for about 40 years had they been delivered from the bondage of Egypt. And the word of God, it's brand new to them. They had never had it before until God delivered it to them in Mount Sinai. Exodus 19 and 20. God, even in this very moment, is putting the pieces in place for them to have their own country so that they can be their own nation. And so the the nation of Israel, they are spiritually infants. Why would God not protect them while they were growing? Why would God not do whatever He needed to do to make sure that these spiritual babies arrived at adulthood? Adulthood. And God's goal isn't just for these people. It isn't just for their descendants. God's plan is so much bigger than that. God intends to bless the entire world. All of it. And God intends that that blessing will come from these people. From these people. The one standing before Moses on the plains of Moab will come the Messiah, the one through whom the world will be blessed. It's through this nation And God's dealings with them and and the whole thing that He will demonstrate to the entire world how much all of us truly do need a Savior. And not only does God love His plan, His plan is to bless the world, but He loves these people. They're not just objects that God manipulates for His own end. Jeremiah 31.3 Long ago, long ago, the Lord said to Israel, I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love. With unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. God loves his people. When you love, you want to protect. God loves these people. God loves the world. And that's why it's so vital that the nation of Israel survive. And that's why God calls for such decisive action here. That's something we don't see anymore. You know, we don't see decisive action because decisive action is usually never politically correct. But God doesn't care about political correctness when the lives of millions of people are at stake. And so He will protect their lives for their sake and for the sake of the world. And God will call for the elimination of those that for their own glory would seek to turn other people Away from God. Away from life. Look in verse 7. Do not yield to them or listen to them. Show them no pity. Do not spare them or shield them. The NASB says conceal them. So God is calling us here to report people. To turn them in. Name them. Friends. Family members. It doesn't matter. Is this really God's way? Is God really this totalitarian? And when have we ever seen good come From that. The French Revolution, when people were denouncing one another right and left and heads were rolling. Nazi Germany, reporting anyone who opposed Hitler. See, we can't imagine that totalitarianism is ever a good thing. We can't even imagine thinking any good thoughts about a totalitarian leader. But that's because they are human. And they are full of pride. And they are full of ambition. And to what was Hitler calling his people? What kind of society was he trying to create in his totalitarian regime? One that exterminated Jews? One that exterminated the marginalized of society? Those with physical challenges? Those with mental challenges? Look at the kind of repressive Violent society that the totalitarian Islamic state seeks to establish. And then look at the society that our totalitarian God seeks to create. We read last week from Isaiah chapter 1. He calls on his people, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice... Correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. That's what God seeks in his totalitarian authority. Or how about the much quoted Micah 6:8? He has told you, O oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the kind of society that God seeks to establish. One that takes care of the marginalized, the widows, the orphans, the aliens. A society that promotes compassion and mercy, that seeks justice, that learns to do good. And what kind of spirit is possessed by this totalitarian God that indwells us, his people? Well, it's a spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness... Gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's the nature. That's the, the spirit of God. And so guess what? You get to be unashamedly, you get to be unapologetically totalitarian when you are the great and glorious and gracious and good God and when this is the kind of society that you seek to establish. And only those... Who are foolish would fight against such a ruler or attempt to dethrone him. The wise would welcome and support him. So look, the, the, the context of God's people has changed. They're no longer uh, in spiritual infancy, gathered on the plains of Moab, not even possessors yet of the promised land. No, the Messiah has come. It's, it's an accomplished fact. And on the cross he defeated the power of sin and death and hell. And Hebrews chapter 12 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So listen, the kingdom is now secure. The kingdom of Christ is secure. It's not going to fail. The gates of hell are not going to overcome it. But God is still totalitarian. And God still is protectively loving his children. And Deuteronomy chapter 13 is a reflection of the heart of God and how serious he is that we eliminate from our lives that which would turn us away from him. We sang earlier this morning, sin and despair like the sea waves cold threaten our soul with infinite loss. Sin threatens our very soul's. And so we can't allow the sickness of sin to run rampant within us. There is no place that it will not infect. And you and I wrongly understand compassion if we think compassion means to to just let sin go unchecked. When we see it in our lives, when we see it in the lives of others in our homes, when we see it in our church, when we say, oh, it'll be okay, guess what? It will not be okay. Thus says the non-confrontational person. But it's true. Sin is never just going to go away. It's never going to run its course. It's never going to run its course and leave behind it a whole and healthy person. Never. If that were a possibility, then Jesus would not have had to die on the cross to cure our sin problem. But he did have to die on the cross. He is the only cure for our sin problem. No matter who tells you otherwise, a pastor, a church, who says, well, Jesus is our way. He's a good way, but not the only way. Family member, close friend, what are you doing? What's this Jesus business? The culture that you and I are so eager to enter in and be accepted by no matter what else any of them offer, no matter how alluring, no matter how seductive, if those things, if those people turn you away from Christ, no good will ever come of it. No good will ever come from it. God's Word promises that. So, instead of being embarrassed by a passage like Deuteronomy 13, I embrace it with great joy. This is the kind of God that we have. A God who loves us this much that he wants life for us, life that's only found in Jesus Christ. And yes, God is totalitarian in this. Isaiah 64, since ancient times, no one has heard, no eye has perceived, no ear has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for, of those who long for him. And herein God distinguishes himself from every other idol, from all else by which people imagine that they can, con- can obtain some good thing in their life. No, they are simply inventions of the human imagination. And they're to be given up. And they're to be counted as loss for the sake of Christ. The Apostle Paul quotes from the Isaiah passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, The things God has prepared for those who love Him. These are the things that God has revealed to us by His Spirit. See, no one else could conceive of the gospel. Only God. And so in amazement, you and I proclaim, Lord, what you have given us in Christ exceeds the capacity of our human minds to understand. That's how far beyond us you are. And that's why, oh God, you can be our totalitarian father. And that's why, oh God, you can call from us such drastic measures to protect us. To bless us with the life of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To bless us with the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to bless the world through us with the life of Christ and with the glory of Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are great, good, glorious, gracious. We love you. Father, we thank you for your word, all of it. It's a reflection of your heart and your mind and your will for us and for this world in which we live. Father, we thank you that you are this serious about life. You are this serious about your desire to give life to the people of this world right now in this time and in this place we thank you that you are a father who loves us your children and that you protect us because lord you're for us because you want us to make it because you want us to experience life and you want to shield us and protect us from the death and the destruction and the decay of sin and so you act on our behalf and we thank you for that Father, we pray that through the power of your Spirit, you would help our hearts understand and our, our, our minds grasp exactly what your view of sin is. What your view is of those things and those people that we think are so innocuous, not that big a deal, but subtly, little by little, they're turning us away from you. Father, convince us. That those people we follow, those places we go, those things that we do that lead us further and further away from you will never, ever end in a good place. Thank you as well that there's forgiveness for those who will confess their sins and turn in faith to you. There's hope, there's not despair. That Lord, we can be active in turning away from and eliminating those things, anything in our life that would turn us away from you. Thank you for your love for us, for your love for this world. Father, put us in a good place. Turn our eyes on you and our ears toward you. Let let you be our focus, Lord, so that we can be your instruments that you use to bring life to the world. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.